This morning we are talking about this idea. Uh, really, this message is titled Unplanned. What happens and how do you respond when the plans of your life are absolutely disrupted? How can you see God's bigger picture and trust Jesus in the process? Now, I don't know about you guys, but um, anytime I'm going to preach, similar to what Taylor mentioned, is God will test me on the very thing I'm about to talk about. So that means that if I'm going to talk about how God will disrupt our plans and how do you trust him in that process, that means that that week, everything in my life is going to go south when it comes to my schedule or my agenda or the plans I have. Now, are there any type A people in this room? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you're a type A. That's bull. There's more. Raise your hand. There are more of you. Raise your hands. God sees you. All right? All right, here's the deal. So type A people, we love a good plan. I think, I think, honestly, I think God loves a person who stays up Sunday night, me and Megan, we come up with a plan for the week. We schedule out the week. You know, when are we going to cook? Never. But we've got a plan for it. Where are we going to buy our food from? So we have a plan. Now, here's, have you ever heard this saying? It goes like this. There's a cursor. See, not going to go according to plan. All right. I planned that. Now let's fix it. Ah, here is an old Yiddish proverb. I don't know what that means, but it's not in the Bible. Could be. Feel like it is generally as a narrative. But if you make plans, God laughs. Has anybody ever heard this phrase? Like we make plans and God laughs. Now, I don't necessarily know if it's that trivial. I don't think God is like up there like, (laughs) you know, there goes your AC unit, Ryan, because that's what he did this week. But I do think generally as a narrative, if you study scripture, this is absolutely true for all of us. The reality is this. In life, control is an illusion. I'll say that again. The older you get specifically, the things we can control in our lives are few and far in between. We just don't have that much control of life. And it's one thing when it comes to your schedule for the week, but it's another thing when it comes to massive decisions and moments in your life. You know, nobody plans for a spouse to walk out the door and to give up on their marriage. Nobody plans for a child to go through a massive health crisis. Nobody plans for you, you know, to struggle finding community over and over or to be on the job market for years waiting for an opportunity. Nobody plans for those things. And at times, though, that's what life delivers us. And so how do we, in these seasons where it feels like our plans are disrupted or even destroyed, how do we trust Jesus in those places. So this morning we're in Matthew chapter 1. We're continuing to finish chapter 1. If you were with us last week, we worked through this riveting text, the genealogy of Jesus. We read about 40 names you guys didn't know. And now we're going to finish chapter 1 with the birth of Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. If you're comfortable with this, we're going to stand together. Let's stand. And we are going to read this text together. And then work our way through it. So this is Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. And here's what the text reads. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You may be seated. So we're going to work through this text in kind of three chunks here, but it's really important for us to understand the background here as we try to understand how to process this. What we're really doing this morning as we continue this narrative through Matthew 1 is we're going to look at the birth of Jesus, but specifically from the eyes of a character you don't really think, think about. And this was Joseph. Now, if you know anything about Joseph, he's essentially the stepfather of Jesus. He's not the biological father of Jesus because Jesus was not conceived the typical way humans are. We believe theologically in this crazy idea called a virgin birth. Have you ever got have you ever heard of that? No, you've never heard of that. This never happened in human history except one time. So Joseph is this guy you never really think about. So what I want you to do is as we work through the scripture, I want you to place yourself in his shoes as he's interpreting these events. You see, we look back on this story and we have context and understanding. But for Joseph, all of this is happening in real time. So, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to work through that. And, and we're going to draw three lessons from this text. Here's the first one. Here's the first lesson if you're taking notes. Lesson number one. Aim when, when life doesn't go as planned... Aim for what's righteous, not what is right, if you're taking notes, which nobody is. That's okay. All right. I wouldn't either. All right. Not with me. When life doesn't go as planned, when a sermon doesn't go as planned, aim for what's righteous, not what is right. Let's look at verse 18 in our text. And once again, like I said, when we read this, I want you to read this through the narrative of Joseph. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary, that's Jesus' mother Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now let's pause right there. As we come in contact with this story, we meet this young man, Joseph. And Joseph, we see, is betrothed or married to a young woman named Mary. They are married, preparing to consummate their marriage when Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant and that he is not the father. Now, how many of you have seen that show, Easy Reference, the other day, Maury? Y'all remember this show? You remember this where they're like, Joseph, you are not the father. And he's like, yeah. He's running around there. He's like, who is? Show the DNA test. And they're like, the DNA results are out of this world, Joseph. Literally. God is the Father. And you're like, okay, I'm leaving. Um, but that's what happens here. All right, so check this out. This is a crazy story if you place yourself in Joseph's shoes. 
Joseph, this young man who's so excited about marriage, who's betrothed to this woman, finds out that the woman that he's married to and preparing to consummate that marriage is pregnant. Now, most theologians believe that when Joseph would have found out Mary was pregnant, she was about four months pregnant at this point. Now, for us to understand the context of why this is so powerful and impactful and how Joseph is going to respond, you need to know the context of marriage. Now, they use this word that's not typical that we hear called betrothed. Anybody got betrothed this past month? No, you haven't. Okay, so in our day and age, we use the vernacular of engagement. But it's not really a great word to understand what's happening here. So I want to give you some background. Track with me for a second. Okay, don't fall asleep on me. But here's how this worked. In this culture, marriages were arranged. Now, what does that mean? How many of you guys are on hinge right now? Nobody's going to raise their hand, okay? There was no hinge back then, all right? I know this has been a success story for so many people, but here's the deal. Hinge didn't exist. Here's how hinge worked. Your family, your, the groom's father would go and select a wife from, for you from a neighboring family or a family friend or even a relative. That's true. So lots of times the groom's family would select a partner for the groom. Once they had selected a partner who was of age, the couple would come together for a binding ceremony where they would fulfill, fill out a contract to be legally married. The groom would purchase the bride for a bride price. Now, I don't know how those prices are set, but I cannot imagine that's an easy conversation. Okay? Like it's like, how much for your daughter? A couple cheeseburgers. Okay. You got it. I mean, that's just weird. Can we just admit that there's some weird traditions around marriage? I feel much better about ours. So here's what happens. The, the bride would be purchased for a price by the groom's family, and then they would legally be married. So when they say betrothed, if you notice in verse 19, it already refer, refers to Joseph as her husband. They are already legally married. In the betrothal process, what they would do from there then is they would live separately for one year in different homes, preparing for the wedding ceremony and abstaining from sex, pursuing purity until they will consummate the marriage in that way. Everybody tracking with me? So one year, they are in this one-year betrothal process where Mary is living separately from Joseph. Joseph is waiting to consummate this marriage. He's preparing for this ceremony. He's so excited. He's giddy. He's walking with integrity. He's walking with purity. And then he finds out that Mary, his wife, has committed adultery. So he thinks. Because once again, has anybody ever become pregnant by the Holy Spirit in the history of mankind? No. Has a woman ever come to you and said, I'm pregnant, but I didn't cheat on you. It was God. No. You would go, okay, let me introduce you to my friend who's a psychologist. Okay, go talk to them. I'll never talk to you again. Okay, that's how it would work. But in this scenario, we have to place ourselves in real time in Joseph's shoes. All he knows is that I've been waiting, I've been preparing, I've been walking in purity, and the woman I'm married to has been unfaithful. Now, here's what's wild. In this context, legally, according to God's law, in Deuteronomy 22, if somebody committed adultery in the betrothal process, 
they were subject to stoning or an execution. Not the stoning I mentioned last week. I'm talking about this. <laughs> Y'all weren't there. Who was here last week? Okay, there's a couple of you. You got that. The Lord is the most high, but not in that way. All right, so check this out. So they could be subject to execution. This is how serious of a deal this was. That adultery, according to Deuteronomy 22, you could be executed. Now, here's how divorce worked in that day. You could pursue the divorce process that Joseph is considering one or two ways. You could do a public court testimony where a woman or a man would come before the community and they would have witnesses to verify if she was unfaithful and then they would incur shame and guilt. He cast out and divorced. Or you could pursue a private ceremony with one or two witnesses and let that person go and y'all would be divorced. If you notice in the text, what is Joseph considering? Listen, check this out, guys. Listen to verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The word just used there in verse 19 is the same word for righteous. So the text reads, and Joseph being a righteous man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolves to divorce her quietly. Now pause. Once again, this text only works if you put yourself in Joseph's shoes. We look back and we know the story, but Joseph does not know the story. Joseph is in the middle of a situation where his life plans, his wedding plans, his family plans, his bride price is all gone because the woman he's married to in preparing to consummate that marriage has been unfaithful, has hurt him, has dishonored him, and incurred shame on his name because people probably think that he's involved as well. And yet, what does he do? Joseph being a just man, a righteous man. He could divorce her publicly and shame her. He could clear his name with the community and let people know he didn't do anything wrong, that he was pure. He could use the law against her. I mean, it is God's law. And yet, how does he respond? Joseph, a righteous man, he pursues compassion and mercy, even in the midst of confusion and pain and hurt and chaos in his life. Joseph was a righteous man. And my point is this. My first point is this. When life doesn't go as planned, when your plans are disrupted, when they fall apart, when you're left in that chaos, you can do what's right in your own eyes or you can do what's righteous in God's. You see, for Joseph in this scenario, he had every right to shame this woman who had dishonored him to bring her publicly before the community, to use the law against her. And yet, what does he do? He chooses what was righteous. And here's what was righteous, guys. When it comes to following Jesus, oftentimes the righteous way is the way of compassion and mercy. The righteous way is not doing what you could, but what you should. Let me say it like this. For many of us, listen, your Christian maturity, your maturity in Jesus can be directly measured to your ability to respond in scenarios where you could be right, but you choose to be righteous. You could get back, 
but instead you choose to respond like Jesus and to bless when you're cursed or to give when you're taken advantage of or to protect someone when you feel like that they've hurt you. You see, Joseph responded in love, in compassion, in mercy for a woman that he cared so deeply about even when he believed he had been wrong and betrayed and she was unfaithful. Joseph was a righteous man. And I, I think of it this way. We, when we hear this, guys, we live in a culture of Christians that we want to use our rights and we want to stand up for our rights, but we aren't righteous. We, we stand up for our rights, but we don't do it with mercy and compassion. If, if we're ever taken advantage of, we try to put people in their place because we have rights in Christ. But guess what? You really don't. In fact, all you have is righteousness in Christ, that we are called to respond the way Jesus would respond in every scenario. And listen, the most powerful person in the room is the person who cannot be swayed when they're hurt or they're wrong, but they stand firm in who Jesus has said they are and they can respond like Jesus. Was Jesus a pushover when he was executed by men, when he had 10,000 legions of angels he could call in one moment and he chose to obey his father instead of playing into the hands of sinners? No, Jesus pursued righteousness, not what was right. And so with Joseph, the first thing we learn is this. Look, when life doesn't go as planned and you're stuck in that scenario and you wonder how you should respond, we always ask the Lord, how can I respond in a way that would be righteous but may not be what would be right that other people would say? The second thing is this uh, that we see from the story of Joseph is this, that remember God is working towards a greater purpose and he always fulfills his promise. So when life doesn't go as planned, here's what I want you to remember. This is what Taylor alluded to, that God is working a, a greater purpose, and he always fulfills his promises. Look at verse 20. So as Joseph is in this place, he is considering these things. Even though he's hurt, he's confused, he's going to respond with compassion and mercy. Here's what happens. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the, the prophet had spoken. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Joseph, in our story here, we take a step back. When life doesn't go as planned, we remember this, that God is working a greater purpose, and he always fulfills his promises. Here's the first thing you see in the text. But as he considered these things, Joseph, as he's in this situation of confusion, and heartbreak as he's preparing to move on from a marriage he's waited for. Here, right at the exact moment, God shows up. But as he considered these things, right at the exact moment, that's when God shows up. And what happens? What does God communicate to him? He communicates this. Look at verse 21. That she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Look, when life doesn't go as planned, when things are disrupted, when you feel like it's chaotic, here's what we know, that behind the scenes, God is always working 
a much greater plan and purpose. In verse 21, we're introduced to one of the most powerful statements in Scripture, that Jesus, the Son of God, is coming to save people from their sins. The name Jesus is actually from the name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves or God saves. This was part of his purpose was Jesus came to save people and to set them free. Now, Joseph in this scenario has no idea about any of this. In fact, when the angel tells him, hey, she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, he's probably like, who? There's no way Joseph even knows who the Holy Spirit is. So in this whole scenario, this is absolute chaos for this young man. And yet, God fills him in on this incredible plan that's far beyond his. Here's what you need to know. Joseph, he was preparing for his wife, his bride, but God was preparing the bride. Come on, somebody. Y'all didn't get that, but you're going to get it because I'm going to say it again. Joseph was preparing for his bride, but Christ, God, was preparing the bride. That's called the bride of Christ. That's the church. You're in it. You, if you're a man here, you're a bride as well. All right? It's kind of weird, but it's true. God had a much greater purpose. All Joseph would understand was his marriage was disrupted. What's he going to do? What happened? All the plans we have. And yet God was working out something much bigger. We were uh, talking with our discipleship group this week. Uh, we were reading through this story, and Corbin kind of made this incredible takeaway, and I wanted to show it on the screen here. Uh, but he said this. He said, you know, God's plan won't make sense to us if we try to make it about us. Somewhere up there. Boom, Corbin Cargill. I quoted him. God's plan won't make sense to us if we try to make it about us. And as I was thinking about this text, you know, you place yourself in Joseph's shoes. Um, God's plans are never fully going to make sense to us if we try to make ourselves the main character in every situation or the centerpiece of every disruption. But the reality is God is always up to something much greater. John Piper says God is always doing a million things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. He's always up to something much greater than your simple story. And yet what we do is we place ourselves as the center of God's universe. And so we think every disruption is the end of the world because we can't think with a greater perspective. You see, Joseph had one disrupted engagement and marriage, and yet God was working salvation for the entire world through this one disruption. Now, let's be honest. None of our disruptions are going to be that powerful today. Okay, I, I don't know what's happening with your house. It's probably not making the way for Jesus, all right, to come and save the world. But he's probably doing something. And this, guys, listen, this is so powerful. You have to track with me here. Listen in. Look, when we can start to live with that type of perspective, every problem and every disruption becomes an opportunity. It's not a setback. It's a setup. Somebody didn't hear me. Travis, that was good. It's not a setback. It's a setup, Trav. Come over here. Somebody didn't hear me. Ben, it's not a, it's a, that's right. So sit up. All right, so here's the deal. No, you're attentive. He's actually taking notes, one of y'all. All right. 
So here's the deal. God is always working in much greater purpose. He's always working in much greater purpose. But the reality is God's plan is not going to make sense to us if we try to make it about us. So when we experience disruptions and problems and our plans are shattered, we have to take a step back and we have to say, okay, God, obviously I'm not in control. Control is an illusion. You don't have control of your life. Let me just fill you in on that right now. You can't control your next breath. You don't know what tomorrow holds. That's what James chapter 4 says. So we're foolish when we think we can plan out our whole lives. Listen, you don't know what your life holds. But here's what we know. That God has promised that everything works for his glory. And everything works for your good. He has promised that he will get glory out of every situation in your life that you allow him to. And he will work it for good. What is good? Taylor already alluded to it. God uses all things for his glory and your good because your good is he's trying to make you more like Jesus. And he's going to use every disruption and problem and pain and situation to form you, even through the fire, to become more like Jesus. And so when something isn't good, you can say it's good because you know it's working for good. God is using it all to make you more like Jesus. I had a friend in college. I I really didn't know what story to share here. Um, But I had a friend in college when we had both just got saved. And you know what it's like in college, man. When you get saved, you're on fire. I mean, I'm just lit up. And everybody I'm touching, they're catching fire too. They're running away and doing stop, drop, and roll for Christ because they're on fire. All right? And then you know what? You go back to your family, and they're not on fire. And you're like, there's something wrong with y'all. You say you're Christians, but you're not on fire. Be better, dad. All right, that's not what happened with me and my dad, but it could have. So I had this friend, and he wanted to see his family come to know Jesus like he had. Man, when you know Jesus, when you love Jesus, you want everybody to know and love Jesus. Guess what? People talk about the things they love. If you love it, you talk about it. If you don't love it, you don't talk about it. Nobody has to convince me to post photos of Adeline on Instagram. How many of you follow me on Instagram? Pull out your phone. All right. Not many of you. And you haven't been seeing the photos. Rob, hit that photo. Come on now. Come on, somebody. I didn't even plan this. That photo was just there. I mean, goodness gracious, is that the cutest baby you've ever seen? I know dads have to say their daughter's cute because nobody could ever live if they didn't. But that's the cutest girl in the world. Somebody disagree with me. Get out, Ernest. (laughs) Ernest, no, that don't count. You're saying that because your wife is here, and you want to stay married. Could fall apart. Plans. All right. So I don't know where I was going with this. Okay, so. Nobody has to convince me to post photos of her. Why? I love her. We talk about the things we love. Man, listen, you want to catch fire for sharing Jesus with people? Fall in love with Jesus. That's the key to evangelism. You know, I don't need to teach you a class on evangelism to get you to tell people about Jesus. The reason you don't tell people about Jesus is you don't love him. When you fall in love with somebody, there's nobody who's going to stop me from telling everybody about him. I don't care what you tell me. I don't care how foolish I look fall in love with Jesus. So my buddy, he fell in love with Jesus. And he wanted his parents to as well. But they were very far from God. 
And so we began to pray for this. We began to pray that my buddy Mike's family would come to know Jesus. And here's what happened. In a matter of two weeks, both of his parents got diagnosed with very severe forms of cancer. One was an incredibly severe form of breast cancer, his mom, and the other was pancreatic cancer, stage four, with his dad. Now, I don't know how God works in these things, and I'm not saying God gives people cancer. I I think God is the giver of only good gifts. But we know according to his word that he uses all things and that he uses suffering and affliction. And we know what he uses it for is always to give him glory and draw people to him for their good. And so in this situation, my buddy, all their plans completely disrupted. All their family dreams completely dismantled. His time at college completely interrupted. And here he was just wondering how to respond. I prayed for my family to come to know Jesus, and I'm not even sure they're going to live till next month. And so he walked through this process with his family as they began this journey. But what was so powerful was in that. Pain somehow has a way of getting our attention in life. And if you've ever been in a moment where you are in such pain, physically, emotionally, mentally, you know that oftentimes it takes pain for you to pause and to stop and for God to get your attention. And in that space, both of his parents began to catch fire for Jesus. His dad specifically His dad caught so much fire for Jesus. At this time, I was a a poor, starving musician artist. Musician's a strong word. I came out with music. And I had just come out with this album, so nobody was buying my albums, of course. So his dad, though, wanted all my albums. So he would buy all my albums and ship them all across America to every friend he's ever had. And he would send them to him and say, I want you to know Jesus like I've come to know Jesus. And so this is wild. Years later, I'm in Fort Worth, and I meet a young girl who is at this church, and she's in my friend Michael in his small group at that church. And she tells me a story that Michael's father had sent her a a CD some years back. And in the lowest part of her life, she pulls the CD out, she hears about Jesus, and she ends up giving her life to Jesus. And then as she follows Jesus, she finds herself in the small group of this young man named Michael, whose father was the one who sent her the CD. And as I was sitting in that moment, thinking about how all that played out, it was easy to see this greater purpose that you don't see in the moment. And the reality is with my friend Michael, one of his parents survived and the other passed. His father ended up passing, but not without purpose. You know, as Taylor said, not every story is bowed up at the end. But what we do know is that in that, as we looked at his family that came to all know Jesus and to walk together and to serve together and to minister to others together, that we believe there was a greater purpose at play, even when our plan didn't work out. Because God always fulfills his promise, just like he shows in the text. And his promise is that he will work it for his glory and for your good. It doesn't mean that it always works out exactly as we had planned, but we know that it always works out for God's greater purpose. And it will be for good. And one pastor, he says it like this, that if it's not good yet, then God's not done yet. If something in your life that you're walking through that disruption right now, if it's not good yet, then God's not done yet. Because he works everything for his greater purpose. And he always fulfills his promise. And Joseph 
didn't understand that. But as God shared with him what he was doing, he started to take a step back and see it. Here's the last thing, though, that we learn from the story of Joseph when it comes to our disrupted plans. Look at verse 24. Here's our last point. Is that when life doesn't go as planned, choose obedience despite the outcome. When life doesn't go as planned, choose obedience despite the outcome. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, I want to read back through that because it's easy to miss how powerful this is. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Pause. I want you to place yourself in Joseph's shoes. Your life plans have been disrupted. You believe that your marriage partner has been unfaithful. You are preparing to divorce her and move on with your life. You have no idea what the future holds. And then as you go to sleep, you have a dream where an angel appears. I don't know if you've had one of those lately. They're not common. And in this dream, the angel commands him, this is of God, take her as your wife. And when Joseph wakes up, he immediately obeys God. He immediately takes Mary as his wife. Now, here's what you need to know. In this scenario, for Joseph to follow through with this decision, he was going to incur a ton of shame and judgment and gossip because, of course, everyone's going to believe that he has been unpure and that he's taking Mary as his wife because they've been unfaithful outside of marriage. And I imagine that at every watering hole in Israel, they're talking about this couple that's pregnant outside of wedlock and that is claiming that God is the father of the child. Is nobody tracking with me there? I mean, can you imagine saying, hey, Joseph, here's what he does. He breaks the betrothal process of one year. He breaks all custom to take her into his home to protect her and cover her and keep security over her, even though he knows he's going to face judgment from people. And as he's going to tell his friends, well, hey, dude, actually, I wasn't unpure. It was God. What? Dude, I'm never talking to you again. Here's the reality, guys. I don't think we understand just quite how powerful this is. Listen, for Joseph to do this, he's literally living for an audience of one because nobody is going to believe him but the very person who told him, God. In fact, here's what you need to know. Sometimes the only one who's going to have your back is God. Sometimes the only person who's going to know you're doing the right thing is God himself that he will call you to do things in your life where people will not understand. And they will think you're crazy. And yet you know you're obeying Jesus. He was living for an audience of one. But the second thing we see, just like I said, is this, that Joseph, he obeys despite the outcome. Here's what I know about me, and it's probably true for you, is this. When God calls us to do something, here's what we do. We go, okay, How's this going to play out for me, God? So we analyze the outcome, and we minimize obedience. 
when God calls us to do something that wouldn't make sense, that if you're in Joseph's shoes here, is certainly going to tarnish his reputation and cause you to be a cast out. Nobody's going to believe anything you're saying about how this birth happened. What we do is when God calls us to do something, we first analyze the outcome to determine our obedience. What do I mean? Hey, uh, God's calling me to do this. Well, let me see how this plays out for me. Is this going to actually, is this going to benefit me financially, God? Because if it's not going to benefit me financially, I mean, could this really be you? You know, God, I know you're telling me to walk in purity, but like, I don't know, how's this going to play out for me? Is this going to work out? Is this not going to work out? Because why would I deny myself right now if I could just take advantage of that? So we analyze the outcome determined to determine our obedience. Nobody does this? Y'all just perfect? Okay, some, something's going on here. Here's what I do. God will tell you to do something, and you will try to determine if you should obey it based on how it plays out for you. But that's not how obedience works. We obey Jesus despite the outcome. We obey Jesus at his word, and we leave the results with him. And Joseph, in this scenario, this is what he does. He just takes God at his word. He doesn't analyze how this could play out for him. He simply says yes, and he moves forward in obedience. I don't know about you, but that's not always my story. And every time I look back at times where I believe God has called me to do something, but I got bogged down in the details of how could this play out or how is this going to work out or maybe this won't work for me, and then I minimize obedience in my life, and I never walk through with what God told me to do. You know, for those of you who were there this week, uh, we had our volunteer Christmas party, and we were celebrating, you know, almost a year that we've been planted as a church now. And when we set out, you know, it was really just two dudes, and we had 27 people who were willing to set out on this journey to plant a church downtown. But here's the thing. Nowhere in that scenario where we believe God called us out to do this did he say that this would be successful. Not one time did God ever say, hey, Ryan, you know, I'm asking you to do this really hard thing. You're going to move downtown. You know, you don't know anybody uh, right after you're married. And, um, and then you're going to just, you're going to start this church. But guess what? It's going to be awesome. I mean, it's going to be a mega church. It's going to blow up. Financially, it's just going to go through the roof. I mean, it's a bunch of young people without jobs. It's going to work out. All right? Your giving's going to be crazy. I mean, you're going to be in this building that, you know, smells weird and, you know, doesn't have, has the weirdest rooms. And, um, you know, it's just going to be amazing. It's going to flourish. God doesn't tell us those things. He doesn't do those things. He simply calls us to obey him and to leave the results with him. But what we want is the results up front. We go, okay, God, you're calling me to do something hard. Okay, I want to obey you, but show me how it's going to play out, and then maybe I'll consider taking a step forward. That's not faith. That's not how God works. And so what it looks like is to take Jesus at his word. And when he's calling you out to do something hard, you can say, okay, God's going to provide. He's going to take care of us. He's going to do his thing. And so I'm going to obey him despite the outcome. That's what we learn from the story of Joseph. So this morning as we close, um, per usual, I wanted to throw some questions up here for us to chew on as we think through this narrative and we study this text. Obviously, through the life of Joseph, we see a young man who had his plans and his future and his dreams 
unraveled in the most unique of circumstances. But the reality is every one of us can relate to this in some way as we are moving forward in life and maybe we're following Jesus and then we look up and it feels like everything is falling apart. So I want you to think about a, a few questions. And the first is regarding obedience. You know, is there an area in your life where God is asking you to obey him despite the possible outcomes? What would it look like to move forward in obedience today? And the second question is this. Is there a decision or a relationship currently where you are tempted to be right instead of righteous? What would it look like to pursue righteousness in that situation today? So I want to leave these up here, give you a moment to take them to the Lord. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and we'll close in a song. Take a moment.